to the Clan McKenzie podcast. Glad to have you in with the Clan McKenzie podcast this week. Uh, we've got again, Andrew McKenzie. Thanks for joining us. That's okay. Good, good to be here. It's always good to be here, isn't it? <laughs> We've got interesting breaking news that I thought we'd start the show off with. Uh, the birth of a new Mackenzie with Castle Loud. Colin has a son. Yeah, exactly. And I mean, not just any old Mackenzie, but um, I guess a future chief eventually. So what is that? How does that break down? So we have titles. Caberfay is the title of of John Kenzie. Yeah, Caberfay John John is the Earl of Cromarty. Um, then the the British peerage. The, the way it works is that the the elder son gets as a courtesy title. He gets his second most important title. So so John is effectively Earl of Cromarty, Viscount Tarbot and Baron Castlehaven. Um, and then the elder son gets given his second most important title as his courtesy title. So Colin is is Viscount Tarbert. And I guess the new the new boy, um, who I gather is called Roderick, which I guess is probably after his John's father was was Roderick or or Rory. So I'm I'm assuming that they they've named him after after him, the the last Earl of of Cromarty. Um, I guess he'll be Baron Castlehaven, actually. Whether whether they'll call this little baby Baron Castlehaven, or <laughs> I don't know. But in um, in sort of strict um, etiquette, that that would be his title. Exciting news! Well, we wish to give a big congratulations out to yeah, absolutely, yeah, Colin and and. Julia, who are both both really lovely people, so it's 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 great news. Yeah, it is great news. I noticed the Facebook blowing up, a lot of likes, a lot of people commenting on that from the post uh, from the uh, Clan Society of Scotland in the UK putting that out there. So yeah, we're we're thrilled about that. It's good news. I know that's a it's a big relief, and it's a lot of excitement when that takes place, especially the first one. Yeah, I'm great. sure. Yeah. Well, this week we're going to continue talking about the Bronze Seer. Um, our last episode, we spoke a bit about who the Bronze Seer was. Uh, maybe he's a, a amalgamation of different concepts of uh, people. Some people had that concept that there was a Bronze Seer in the 16th century. Uh, we're going to talk a little bit about all that stuff and combined with the actual prophecies themselves, according to Alexander Mackenzie in his book, uh, The Bronze Seer's Prophecies. So. Um, I guess to begin with, uh, you had made an interesting point in our, we were having a little bit of a discussion about how you might break down uh, his, his different uh, prophecies, and you put them in four categories, 
new technology disasters, depopulation, and the decline in the Mackenzies. That's right. That's pretty spot on, actually. I yeah, that that does seem to be a a pattern that that they fit into, and and I think I think personally that that actually fits what I was talking about last time um, about um, the historian Keith Thomas's idea about why prophecies occur, occur in history because he was a, a bit of an anthropologist as well as a historian and he'd looked into that and I, his idea was that people come up with prophecies as a way of sort of reassuring themselves and softening the blow when there are big major changes happening in in history people find it quite difficult and it's it's quite a shocking event for them and keith thomas's theory was that they they make they make this these changes more acceptable by by saying that they were inevitable and that they were always foretold so that that sort of makes it a bit a bit gentler yeah so in connection with that i guess one of the ones that i would like to know what would be the gentler blow of a prophecy with regards to Fairburn Tower? So I'm just going to read to you what Alexander Mackenzie recorded about this prophecy. Uh, he said that Cognac also prophesied remarkable things regarding the Mackenzies of Fairburn and Fairburn Tower. The day will come when the Mackenzies of Fairburn shall lose their entire possessions and that branch of the clan shall disappear almost to a man from the face of the earth. Their castle shall become uninhabited, desolate, and forsaken. And a cow shall give birth to a calf in the uppermost chamber in the Fairburn Tower. So I guess the question is, we a lot of people know this tale. What was the situation with the Mackenzies of, of Fairburn, you might say? And how was it that this castle that, I guess... You know, history talks about it being full of music and and splendor. How was it that it got to the point where a, a cow would actually give birth in the uppermost chamber? Yeah, quite well. In in the seventeenth and eighteenth century, it was a pretty impressive castle. I mean, to, for a a local landowner in the Highlands to build a, a a tower like that that was very expensive, and it, it was quite a quite a lavish seat for the the Mackenzies of Fairburn but by the by the by the um, 19th century by about 1850 um, it had been completely neglected and derelict the the Mackenzies of Fairburn still owned it but they'd moved to a another bigger sort of rather Victorian gothic mansion um further to the west they just uh, which, abandoned the tower yeah yeah they did um but and it was just used by a farmer and they it literally was used to save to store hay in the the top floor and that the sort of trail of hay had led this this cow to to follow it up to the top of the tower and literally give birth and by all accounts it was it, it caused such a stir by fulfilling the prophecy that they they actually laid on special transport for tourists to come from Inverness on a on a regular basis. 
Wow. So, a, go ahead. There was interestingly there was another there was another prediction which was similar, which was that a a rowan tree would grow from the top of the castle, and when it reached to be axle, that then Seaforth will return, because again that that relates to the the doom of the Seaforth. Prophecy, which we talked about last time, when because the last Lord Seaforth died in 1815, and that was meant to fulfil the prophecy of the of Seaforth's doom. Um, but funny enough, when a a tree was supposed to have grown, a rowan tree, uh, that, that a mountain ash tree, which is a local tree which has red berries, quite distinctive, um, and apparently it. it grew to the, the width of a cart's axle and that was at the time of just after the first world war when the the seaforth family actually revived their title because the 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 seaforth heir at that time was created baron seaforth because of his part of the first world war so i guess that i, I you say as a sort of example of softening the blow and sort of putting a a sort of positive bent on things that that was a positive event that that Seaforth effectively returned because they revived the title isn't that amazing well that is interesting thanks for sharing that bit of insight it's not something that you see I guess in the a lot of the prophecies like you mentioned um a lot of times they're just specifically in the doom so the return is a, a fascinating one but going back I guess to to Fairburn Tower out of curiosity um, it's said that they would remain um, uninhabited at some point in the prophecy. Now, now we see that it's the cast or the tower rather is being restored. Does that put a damper on the Bronzier's prophecy? <laughs> Maybe it does. I I suppose I personally I was in two minds when they when I heard that the Landmark Trust was restoring it. So I I thought, oh, that's rather a pity because it sort of makes sense that it's because of the prophecy and the whole history behind it it's rather nice that it's a ruin but I having seen because Sandy McKenzie shared a, his video when he he looked around it and having seen what they've done to it actually I I think I've changed my opinion I I, I think they've done a, an absolutely fantastic job on it and he actually he pointed to the the bit where the cow was supposed to have given birth and <laughs> and i guess probably it would be quite difficult to keep it as a ruin that the longer it stays a ruin the the worse it's going to get and it will eventually fall down so yeah and actually i'm rather looking forward to having the chance of of staying there it looks like a really really nice place to stay in the area so yeah um, I just um, <clears throat> happened to come, I stumbled across an article uh, from yesterday from the Press and Journal uh, newspaper, and they have an interview with, it says the man that's bringing uh, the past to life at Fairburn Tower in the Highlands, his name's Paul Malbury, and he's doing the the uh, painting in the ceilings to give it that uh, original oh, right. that it would have had. It's beautiful. Oh, wow. It, it's amazing. So yeah, I mean, if we can... Uh, you know, have an opportunity to actually stay there and 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 maybe put a 
put a block to the fulfillment of the bronze seer's prophecy, then we all have the duty to stay there at the tower. That, that's really interesting. Time. I I didn't know about the painted ceilings because there was a that you there are quite a few Scottish houses from the 16th and 17th century where they have rather colourful painted ceilings. Actually, I went to um, Royston House in Edinburgh. Um, I just by pure coincidence, I was there to do evaluation for the the pictures and um, met the the new owners. That that was the house which was actually designed by the first Earl of Cromarty at the end of the the seventeenth century. Oh wow! And there was an earlier there was an earlier house there, and there was one room which had these beams, which were painted. I, I suspect that might be similar. I don't know. I'm just guessing that might mm -hmm. be the sort of idea that they're they're doing in Furburn Tower because that that's the way they would have decorated the ceilings from a 16th century castle or house in in Scotland in that period. So that's really interesting. Yeah, it is. It, it looks they have some pictures on the um, website, and yes, it looks like oh, I'll have to look yeah. um, whether it's actually painted. Be it does look like it's actually painted be beams in this one picture that they have on there. But yeah, uh, it's beautiful. It's it looks amazing, and they've done fantastic work. Uh, the trust has done excellent in restoring that that tower. Uh, I hope to see it one day myself. Um, I get you know we could talk about the prophecies of um, the bronze here talking about the battle of Culloden. We could talk about his, his foreseeing the, the railway system, potentially there's a lot of different things that he, he talks about, but again, this is the Mackenzie podcast. So I guess we really should move into probably the, the biggest and most common prophecy, which is uh, the fall of the Seaforths or the doom of the Seaforths. He said, it's interesting in, in the, in the book that Alexander Mackenzie wrote, he talks about the idea that um, the, the third Earl uh, of Seaforth had a dream about his, his sickness, the, I guess. The last, the last Lord Seaforth had, had a dream. He was the one that the prediction was meant to be about the last, the last Seaforth. Um, he, when he was a boy at school, um, he there was a bout of scarlet fever and he was put in a dormitory um, together with the other boys that, that had the illness. And his dream when he was sick was that he saw this, this hideous witch enter the dormitory and she's meant to have gone round each boy certain boys she had a a peg and she hammered a peg into their skulls um he got to her and he was sorry he, she got to him he stood by his bed stopped and stared at him for a bit and he was terrified she was going to do the same thing to him but she she passed by and then carried on and um and apparently he told the doctor the story and he told which boys she'd she'd either stopped by which boys she'd passed on and which boys she'd hammered into their skulls and the ones she'd hammered into the skulls ended up dying of scarlet fever the ones that she stopped and stared at including the last lord seaforth ended up having 
lasting illnesses and he he was um he was actually dumb and then later later in life went deaf um and then the ones that she just passed by and didn't stop at were were perfectly fine apparently that and but that was quite well documented at the time so i believe it or not i i i really don't know but um, a lot of people did believe it at the time yeah, that's what I thought was interesting is, um, as he puts this, there's a lot of talk that the sea forts were quite aware of the prophecies of the seer. I Yeah, apparently, yes. Yeah. One, I, I mean, to be slightly skeptical, one reason for that was that there was, there was a sort of template of the, what the, the prophecy was when a, a buck-toothed laird of Gerloch, a I, I whatever the details are uh, mm -hmm. uh, various various different lairds important lairds with various ailments when they all coincided then that's when the prophecy would become fulfilled and the same prophecy was quoted by thomas Pennant, the travel writer in the middle of the 18th century in a different, slightly different form, with different lairds, with different ailments, and then the same prophecy was predicted when the um, the famous Lord Lovett, the the character, probably best known because he features in Outlander now, mm -hmm. um, the the the, the um, Fraser chief who was executed for his part in the forty five rebellion, when when he was born. Um, there was a supposedly a similar group of lairds with different ailments, pockmarked, buck-toothed, and yeah. whatever. And so that there's no doubt that that prophecy was well known in the Highlands, in some form or other. So therefore, when when the last Lord Seaforth died, there was a little group of lairds with disabilities. So people were able to point to that and say with a certain degree of confidence that this this had been predicted. Yeah. Uh, I suppose a skeptic would say, oh, but it wasn't the exact form and it's a, just a sort of template which people people use and just to sort of as I say again, going back to Keith Thomas's idea that it, it somehow alleviates the the pain of disastrous big big bad events and that the end of the Mackenzie chiefly line was a huge important event because they'd been in the they'd been prominent chiefs in Russia prominent landowners not just for Mackenzie's but for all the all the people living locally in that part of the highlands they 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 played a major part in history and suddenly they they died out and come to an end so that that was big 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 news at the time so let's talk about that let's talk about how this comes to be <clears throat> the bronze here obviously he's been around according to the tales uh he's been around he's, he's throwing out all these prophecies he's predicting all these things um it's lady isabella or is it is it just isabel mackenzie yeah I think we lost you there, Andrew. Because she was the sister of... 
You're gonna have to go back. I'm sorry. You're you're I'm losing you really badly right there. Oh. Okay. Um yeah, you my connection's unstable. Um yeah, the, the Isabel Countess of Cromarty, the third earl's wife, she she was herself a Mackenzie. It was all very incestuous in that that period, or most mostly Mackenzies married Mackenzies. Um, but she she was actually the first Earl of Cromarty's sister, and she was a very formidable woman. Um, I I've read diaries at the time and letters which refer to her, and she she had I she wasn't she wasn't a very popular person in the region. So I I think that's why the the legend got attached to her in particular. Um, but um, yeah, the story goes that she she fell out with uh, a, a um, servant of her husband's when he was abroad in time, and she asked him to tell her what what her husband was up to, the third earl, and um, he uh, first he refused to say anything. He didn't think she liked what he saw. Yeah, he tried uh, real she, hard, according to Andrews, to do uh, Alexander's she, book. But she she pushed him and insisted, and um, eventually he he told her that he was sitting on the knee of a pretty girl at the French court, at which she supposedly threw into a rage and and condemned him to death, and um, he was according to the story, burned in a barrel of tar on, on Shannonry Point on the Black Isle, and um, that, that's the port of Fort Rose, the Mackenzie's capital. And um, then ju she, just before he died, he cursed her and, and foretold the doom of the, the Mackenzie's. Um, yeah, with, it's in, uh, in the, his book, he's it says, turning to the seer, she told, uh, she said to him, she said, uh, you have spoken evil of dignities. You have vilified the mighty of the land. You have defamed a mighty chief in the midst of his vassals. You have abused my hospitality and outraged my feelings. You've sullied the good name of my Lord in the hills of his ancestors, and you shall suffer the most signal vengeance I can inflict. You shall suffer the death. So, yeah, she really laid it into him after she begged him to tell her what he didn't want to say. Yeah, and then she predicted that the, her family's line would end with a chief who's deaf and dumb. He'd have promising sons who would grow up, but they'd, they each of them in turn would die before him and then the other famous part of the prophecy is that a white coiffed lassie from the east would kill her sister and um, his the last Lucy fourth daughter um, she was white coiffed both because she returned from India in widow's weeds and at that time a widow would not just wear black but would wear white Mm. Um, particularly in in India, it was a, a widow would wear wear a white hood, white coiffed. But she was also she was married to Admiral Hood, so her title was 
lady hood so she she was white coiffed white hooded in both senses and she killed her sister in a carriage accident she was she was driving a horse-drawn carriage um just on the in the Braun estate and um there's actually a monument to her just um just between the where where Bran Castle used to be and the village of of Contin, which you can still see on the on the road there, and she yeah she killed her her sister Caroline in a in a carriage accident. Yeah, I mean, again, it's it's fascinating that it, that it seems like you know you could you could make these connections that other people that were supposed prophecies had said things that came about, and so you can see some connections. But some of this seems very uh specific i thought it was fascinating also um one bit of research that i did maybe you've considered this before um i think it's called the book the the life of scott it quotes a guy named mr morritt and um, it says that he could testify that he heard that prophecy uh quoted in the highlands when lord seaforth had two sons and in good health and that it certainly was not made after the event. So supposedly this, this prophecy of, uh, of the four sons dying before the last Seaforth died, he was aware of that all while in good health. Things were seemingly really going really well. But on his deathbed, the last Earl of Seaforth, there's a story in um, Alexander's book. I think it's on page uh, somewhere on page 76. It mentions that um, somebody goes up to see him and they come down. They're relatively happy with how he's doing. But he talks to the family piper and the family piper just almost immediately shuts it down. And he says he'll he'll never recover. It's decreed that Seaforth must outlive all his four sons. And I guess there was one left. And so. They get they get news not too long after that that this fourth son had died, and then um, it's at that point in 1815 that uh, the last C4 dies. But it was understood supposedly that uh, these prophecies were were going to take place. In fact, it says again, quoting Alexander Mackenzie, uh, it was understood by the family and all the members of the family again and again repeated the strange tale. I mean, I think that's it's pretty amazing stuff that that they were almost in fear of this taking place. Yeah, and like they seem to be pretty respectable people who were recounting this. I guess I, I, a cynic might say that the stories that that account only happens after the event, but the account is supposedly respectable people saying that they'd heard it before the event and i don't know who who are we to to doubt their their word by all accounts they they did genuinely say that they they'd heard the prediction before it actually happened yeah you know um we talked a little bit about the previous bronzier or conigor from i think the 16th century the witch trial one one person in um, an article I read, I can't give you the reference because I don't know who said it, but I found an article where they 
they asked kind of a good question. They said, if the bronze here was not sentenced to death by Lady Seaforth, then who put the curse on the Seaforths? Seaforth, the Seaforth title was not bestowed on the Mackenzies till 1623, far too late for Koenig Orr, who was involved in the Phallus affair in the 16th century. Yeah, I that he there was in the 1570s and 80s, there are two records of a Cognacor who was tried for witchcraft. Um, the the chief of the Munro's wife at that time, um, Catherine Munro, was tried for witchcraft. In fact, she got off. Um, but there were various people in her circle who were also tried for witchcraft, who were implicated in this. That was the time when witchcraft was a really big, big thing in Scotland. It really took off, in particularly in, in Scotland uh, at that time. Um, and she was implicated. Again, I think she was probably quite a formidable character, and I suspect the same sort of reputation attached to her that, that got attached to Isabel, Countess of Seaforth, a century later. Um, so that I think that that probably is the one historical figure that that we can point to that that started the whole legend of of Cognacor because he was called Cognacor and he was tried for witchcraft. We don't know whether he was executed on Channery Point because there aren't the records, the parish records for Rosemarkey, uh, which was the local church at that time, don't actually survive. So be, it, it would be fantastic if they did. And maybe there was a Cognacor who was burnt on in a barrel of tar on Shannonry Point. But <laughs> sadly, we don't, there's no historical record for that. Yeah. But I think uh, clearly there wasn't an Earl of Seaforth at that time, so I think that was another that was another general popular record in local memory that played a significant part in in local legends, which came about because of Isabel and her strong character, her reputation. Um, the other side, I think the reason why it got attached to the third Earl was because he he had a reputation for having second sight mm. himself. And as I mentioned before, right. his 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 name in Gaelic was Coinich Moore, great Kenneth. I, he was both a big, big, tall man and he was the Mackenzie chief. So he was great Kenneth. In that sense, so I maybe maybe he was got confused with the Coinich or Coinich or and Coinich more got confused together, and then the, the whole story was conflated. Um, but he he was supposed to have foreseen a shipwreck. Um, he warned some friends not to go on a ship to London because there was a shipwreck, uh, which he foretold. And um, he, yeah, a lot of a lot of people at that time did have a reputation of 
having second sight and it was discussed by members of the Royal Society in London. So the, the seriously, there's a very good book called The Occult Laboratory, which talks about that subject. And um, so we, we think of second sight as being magic and superstition and witchcraft but in the 17th century it was it was thought of as as science mm. and actually the first earl of cromarty had his own theory of a, a a sort of atmospheric explanation for why why people had second sight it was a, it was a pseudo-scientific explanation himself so they were trying to they were trying to understand it at the time yeah like you mentioned, it was uh, <clears throat> around the, in the early 17th century you know, with King James. I know that a lot of attacks uh, against witches, and I think he had a book called Demonology where they were. He, yeah, he was almost single handedly responsible for starting the witchcraft craze at that that time. Yes. Yeah. I'd noticed uh, even not too long ago, the uh, Scotsman reported that uh, it's pretty common for for the Scots' belief in second sight or the gift of premonition. So even today, uh, it's a pretty widely held view, apparently, that uh, people can have this second sight. It's a fascinating concept. I guess we'll just never know the real answer about the bronze here. We do know that the story says that uh, he was, as as was mentioned, uh, burned to death in a in a barrel of tar and uh, never heard from again. I guess it would make sense that you'd never find his body or know the truth, right? Sure. Well, I, I mean, my aim is to come up with historical evidence, and you can get an amazing amount of historical evidence if you you trace through the records, but sadly, there aren't any records for that period, so it's a, it's a bit of a gap in the whole thing. Yeah, the best way to conclude this episode of the bronze seer is to end with the words of Alexander Mackenzie in his book, The Prophecies of the Bronze Seer. And he says this, he says, leaving these extraordinary prophecies with the reader to believe, disbelieve, or explain away on any principle or theory which may satisfy his reason, his credulity, or skepticism, we conclude with the following. And it's the famous poem by Sir Walter Scott, Lament for the Last of the Seaforths. In vain the bright course of thy talents to wrong, fate deadened in thy ear and imprisoned thy tongue. For brighter o'er are all her obstructions arose, the glow of the genius they could not expose. And who in the land of the Saxon or Gale might match with Mackenzie? High chief of Kintail, thy sons rose around thee in light and in love. All a father could hope, all a friend could approve. What veils it the tale of thy sorrows to tell? In the springtime of youth and of promise they fell. Of the line of McKenneth remains not a male to bear the proud name of the chief of Kintail. And thou, gentle dame, who must bear to thy grief, for thy clan and thy country the cares of a chief, whom brief rolling moons and six changes have left, of thy husband and father and brethren bereft. To thine ear of affection 
how sad is the hail that salutes thee, the heir of the line of Kintail. Scorned and angry, she has mustered her fine men. Down, down, see her roll down, down into the firth. The white love will soar high and mark the end of your work. As life's work in question, the gift of second sight, never a lie did he mention. Only truth in his tongue From ships round on the hoodies To battles bloody and brave Spoke of big sheep and chariots And hell with black rain Down, down, see her go down Down into the fire The white dove will soar high And mark the end of your There's tales of years unseen on the minds of all rocks At the seat of Mackenzie, he foretold their fate Isabella and Lord Seaforth, the dynasty soon to fall Down, down, see her go down, down into the farm Big crowds they assembled on the eyes of the kirk. Down, down, see her go down, down into the fire. Oh. 